0: So my name is Jeff Green, and I'm really pleased to be joined by Professor Greg Hancock, who's also a distinguished scholar, teacher, and longtime director of the Measurement, Statistics, and Evaluation Program in the Department of Human Development and Quantitative Methodology at the University of Maryland College Park. He's also the director of the Center for Integrated Latent Variable Research. His research interests include structural equation modeling and latent growth models, power, and reliability. His work has appeared in journals such as Multivariate Behavioral Research, Structural Equation Modeling, Psychological Methods, and the Journal of Educational Behavioral Statistics, among others. He has taught over 200 methodological workshops in the United States, Canada, and abroad. He's a fellow of the American Educational Research Association, the American Psychological Association, the Association for Psychological Science, and he's an elected member of the Society of Multivariate Experimental Psychology. And in 2011, he received the Jacob Cohen Award for Distinguished Contributions to Teaching and Mentoring by the American Psychological Association. Greg, thank you for talking to me today about what I believe is your newest book, the second edition of the Reviewer's Guide to Quantitative Methods in the Social Sciences, edited by yourself Laura Stapleton and Ralph Mueller and published by Rutledge.
1: Thank you very much, Jeff. I'm really happy to be here.
0: So the guide is a wonderful and, and much needed resource. Can you tell us just a bit about the purpose of the guide and the intended audience? Absolutely.
1: So the idea behind the guide is to provide some sort of reference that the, well, it's it's stated reviewers can use, but in fact, it's for researchers and, uh, and young scholars alike. And the idea is that any quantitative method that we might choose has a certain set of best practices. And unfortunately, they're sort of scattered all throughout. And what uh, Ralph Mueller and I wanted to do with the first edition and Laura helped us do with the second edition was to try to pull all of that information together so that if someone is using a particular quantitative method or reviewing a manuscript or grant proposal that says it's going to use a particular quantitative method, you know what to look for in those kinds of things. So When Ralph and I originally laid this out that many years ago, a long time ago, we had a very, very specific design for each chapter. And our hope was that this would really distinguish it from other handbooks, uh, where you get a a chapter that's sort of intended to teach you about the method. This isn't intended to be that. Each chapter is structured in a very specific way so that we have up front a quick description of the method, but then very early on, there's a checklist, and that checklist has what we hope is a fairly canonical collection of things that need to be addressed in any in any work that uses that particular method. Uh, so that list of what we call desiderata, mainly just to be able to use the word desiderata, lays out for researchers and reviewers where the different key elements need to fall within a manuscript, whether it's in the introduction or the method section or results or uh, or discussion. And the the idea, the vision here is that if reviewers are using this to try to gauge whether or not researchers are doing what they need to do and they're using a particular uh, method, then that means that the the researchers themselves will want to (laughs) know what they ought to be doing because the reviewers will be looking for those things too. So hopefully we were consolidating a lot of really useful information for
0: reviewers and researchers. And it is incredibly useful. And I think you said it well that while all of us would hope to be good reviewers of every aspect of a manuscript um, and and good writers of manuscript, it is often the case that we were trained at a certain part in our career. And after that, the methodology continues to advance and continues to move forward. And it's sometimes hard for folks to stay up on that. But that doesn't mean that we should stop reviewing the methods and or the analyses that are conducted. And what the guide does is not teach us those methods necessarily, but kind of keep us up to date as to what we should be looking for, where we should find it, and what kind of criteria we should be using to evaluate uh, the methods and results. Um, is, that, is that a fair assessment of the goals of the book? It is a fair assessment. I mean,
1: first and foremost, Jeff, we want to keep the secret that you don't know everything about everything. And the, the idea is that this book will help you um, not not just look smart, but also to help help get you smart. The way each of the chapters is laid out is not just with that particular checklist, um, which has all of these key points enumerated, but that's followed by an elaboration on each of those. So if you are reading a manuscript that's using latent transition analysis and you say, well, you know, I haven't done a whole lot with latent transition analysis. I'm, I'm sort of familiar with it. I, I roughly know what's going on, but you go through the checklist and you see, yeah, number six there, that's really important. Let me go learn more about that. And so sure enough, in the chapter, there's an, uh, an expansion on what point six is all about. It helps explain it to you, why it's important, why it ought to be addressed, and oftentimes a bit of additional information that you can go um, seek out yourself if you want to iron that out. So it, so it is an opportunity for people to learn a bit um, so that you can stay up to date as much as possible.
0: It helps probably all of us uh, be less like reviewer two who <laughs> says things that are either very dated or uh, not quite accurate. We want to we be a little more informed. Uh, we all aspire to be reviewer one. Um, so I, I think the text is incredibly helpful um, in that it does allow us to stay up to date without having to take a lot of courses or a lot of short courses at conferences and that kind of thing. It does help point us in the right direction. One of the aspects of the guide that I th- I think is really helpful in a lot of the chapters, there's this listing of statistical assumptions for each technique and, you know, kind of the explanations of what can happen if they're violated and what happens if multiple assumptions are violated. You know, in the, in the ANOVA between groups design chapter, um, the authors mentioned that, you know, one assumption of the ANOVA is uh, actually not quite what many people think it is, which is many people think, well, if the outcome variable is normally distributed, everything's fine. I can just move on. Um, but in fact, um, the outcome variable has to be normally distributed across all the cells or all the all the subgroups. And I, I think that's a really helpful clarification that can help reviewers do a better job assessing how the manuscript has been written and the analyses have been done. Um, are there other recommendations or details in the guide that you can think of that you wish, gosh, I wish more people knew that. I wish that nuance was clearer or more salient to people?
1: You know, the main thing is really just to get the assumptions out there, first and foremost, because there's so much, I'll just say it, sort of button pushing associated with the statistical analyses. And they've been, um, yeah, they've been templatized in so many ways. And the assumptions are, are, are buried. So the the first objective, and we were pretty explicit about this with the authors when we wanted them to craft the chapters, both for the first edition and the second edition, we we're very explicit that that they bring to the fore what the different assumptions are and why they're important. And, and And quite honestly, not all assumptions are as important for different methods. Some methods are quite robust to violations of certain assumptions, less so to other assumptions. And then sometimes, you know, everything falls apart when you have Multiple assumptions being violated simultaneously, so there's not any one particular assumption that we want to um you know that I would single out right now, but just an awareness and an explicit addressing of those particular assumptions I think is absolutely critical and uh any any reviewer who's looking through a manuscript or a proposal really ought to be looking uh, for those to be addressed so we did try to we did try to try to bring
0: those out as much as possible and I think the button pushing that you referenced is is very common and understandable. People very often are um, kind of in a rush to answer their research questions, which are often sophisticated or complex or um, involve kind of high-powered analyses. I think one of the things that I uh, found kind of delightful about the the guide was the chapter that I think many people might initially tend to skip, and that is the chapter on correlation and other measures. Now, I think many people would think, well, correlation, I know what that is. Um, but it actually provides a really wonderful set of steps for understanding your data and making initial decisions about what your data look like and maybe what are the best ways to approach it. And that's that's the kind of thing I think the guide is really good at, is getting uh, reviewers and applied researchers to really think carefully about what they're doing rather than just pushing those buttons.
1: Well, I'm glad that that resonated with you. Um, you know we we really tried to coax that out of our authors and in fact choose authors who were going to be fairly prescriptive in uh, in these best practices. and we, I think we were pretty successful. um it was a challenge because we had to find authors who honestly were willing to set aside their own research agendas or their own specific methodological biases in many uh, in many cases, and authors who can actually write. Um, there are people who are absolutely outstanding scholars who are great at writing for very technical audiences, but we wanted people who could com- communicate to the the typical reviewer, the typical practitioner as much as possible. And so I like that you found that incredibly useful. That captures at least the spirit of our goal in, in, in the structure for all of these chapters.
0: I'm kind of curious when you approached chapter authors with the idea, uh, you know, what did they think about the concept? I can imagine that these are folks that get asked questions about analyses and proper analysis techniques and all the time. And I mean, to some degree, I can imagine maybe having a strong response to the idea of finally, something that I can just hand people so they can look it up rather than me having to tell them all the time. But what kind of responses did you get from authors?
1: yeah. and and that was part of the sell for starters that uh, you know you can sort of imagine an infomercial are people asking you the same questions all the time? (laughs) Don't you wish there was a book? Right. So that, and that's sort of where Ralph and I came to this from that we had, you know, we've been asked the same questions all the time by colleagues and students. um, And so we wanted to get this together. So when we were doing a pitch with the original set of authors, we tried to sell it that way to them. And, and I think they did buy into the idea. Um, We included for them a, a completed chapter. We said, here is a chapter. This is exactly the structure that we want. Um, can you do this? And we had a lot of people who were really excited to be a part of it. The funny thing was though, <laughs> the first thing we asked for would be their table of desiderata. you know, So step one, show us your table. We want to see, you know, if you really do understand what we're trying to do. And a lot of people, as much as they bought into the idea, the table showed that they really didn't. The table showed that they were really just going to start going directly to the coolest advances in this area and examples of their own research and stuff. So people had this natural inclination to sort of go to what they know. And, you know, we tried to say, no, 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 that's really interesting, but that's not what we want. Um, We even had an instance or two where a person just skipped our request to provide a table and gave us a fully formed chapter, but the chapter was, essentially a handbook type chapter that was a, you know, a next, and we're like, what, did you not read what we sent you? Did you not? No. And that, <laughs> we, we took that as eagerness, I think more than anything. Um, but there were, there were instances where in the end, we could not get what we wanted out of certain authors. And so we politely parted with those people and found other individuals who were able to um, bend to our will Uh <laughs> It was well I mean I'll tell you we 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 really did want something that reflected not just our our need for control over all things in our lives but but something that was that that when you open a chapter you know what you're going to get in that chapter right you flip to cluster analysis there it is there's the list there's the explications of each of those things we really wanted it to have that that format so it, it took a while to get people some of the people anyway to understand it but once we had it pulled together. I mean, we were just so and continue to be so happy when we look at it. Um, I remember the the editor that we had on the first edition was a, a wonderful guy named Lane Akers. And Lane sort of had this sage wisdom for any edited volume. He said, you know, if you're happy with about two thirds of the chapters, that's a win. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so for anybody who's ever edited a volume, you you can sort of see the wisdom in that because, you know, you get what you get from people. Um, but I have to tell you, we just, we cleared that bar without any trouble. When we looked at these chapters, we were so very happy that the authors we had chosen had bought into it in terms of the quality of writing, the structure. Um, and then, and the same is true with the second edition with the new chapters that we have. Um, new authors joined us and and they joined us now with a familiarity of what we had already done in the first edition. So with the first edition already in the bag, these people are like, heck yeah, um, I know what you want. I read the other chapters,
0: so I can do that. That was pretty uh, pretty nice and exciting too. Well, and it's it's proof of concept, right? So the first volume came out, I think many, many people found it very, very helpful. And now people understand the schema and they want to jump in on it. But you're right. I mean, very often when you ask authors to write a chapter for a handbook or an edited volume, you're asking them to write about what's cutting edge or what's new. Um, and to some degree, they're expecting to be cited for their interesting work. I don't know that anyone's ever going to cite, I'm going to pick someone randomly here on the table of contents, Karen Samuelson or Mitchell Dayton about latent class analysis for this particular chapter. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is to be an educational tool and a, a review tool. And so it really does require a different eye. And I think you're to be applauded for being a, a little fixed to being you know, a little tough about making sure that people do follow the same format and have the same goals because as a reader and a user, I need that because I need to be able to pick this thing up, get the information I need and continue my review without having to figure out, okay, how is this chapter structured differently than other ones?
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad that it worked for you too. And we, you know, we did have to beat some, some authors back when, you know, we were, we tried to say, you know, keep your reference list down a bit. And we would get these reference lists that went on for pages and pages, Um, unsurprisingly, you know, one or two authors appearing a lot more than others. Um, But, but, you know, we, we tried to dial that back. And, you know, on the other hand, we don't want the advice that's contained in each of these chapters to be um, considered to be fixed. Uh, I think it's reasonable to say if we had someone else write each chapter, there would be a little bit of difference because each person brings some sense of the way that things are, that things ought to be done um we tried to really encourage reviewers to keep their recommendations uh in the sphere of what would be considered common best practice not one of your pet peeves specifically so there were a lot of examples of pet peeves we sort of had to um had to edit out um from time to time but you know quantitative methods evolve and so i i hope that by the time we get to the 5th edition um when i when i'm long dead uh <laughs> cuz <'cause> this one <laughs> these are so much work um but you know by the time we get to subsequent editions the, these should be evolving the chapters should look different there should be different practices and some will be considered traditional and and be fairly locked in um although there are still new perspectives on how even traditional methods should be used but but we really hoped that we were creating something that would have a certain, uh, you know, living document sense about it. Uh, So that, and, and indeed in this edition, all of the authors went back, the original authors went back through and modified their chapters to reflect changes here and there, and just other didactic improvements that they, that they wished they could have back. And uh, and we gave them the opportunity. So I'm, uh, I'm happy that this has, uh, has met our goals and, And, you know, and I can't help but keep thinking about the third edition. I need to not do that. And I think my therapist wants me not to do that. Uh, But, you know, I come across all of these new and emerging methods all the time. And I make a little note to self, maybe the third edition, Mm -hmm. maybe the third edition. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is, oh, man, it is so much work, as you know, pulling
0: these things together is a ton of work. It is. But, you know, I do think in particular, uh, this guide does serve such an important didactic and um, really a a gatekeeper purpose for the field. You know, I think there's been a lot of concern recently about the quality of social science research and what gets published and what doesn't and whether the findings are replicable and all those things. Um, and, And part of that is because perhaps we have not been doing as good a job as we need to as reviewers of really vetting the methods and analyses conducted to ensure that they're high quality. And I think it's it's understandable that people that don't know a lot about statistical analyses or quantitative methods might think that they're pretty straightforward. But as you point out, and as, as the authors point out in the chapters, there are these differences of views. There are these key pivot points where uh, some people think you should do it one way and some people think you should do it another way. And I really appreciate when the authors identify those and try to give the reader at least some background about why the current controversy exists and kind of what they think might be a good way forward. Uh, I'm reminded of the listservs, uh, statistical listservs that you can join where you think it's just going to be questions and answers, and in fact there are these occasional mailstorms of controversy that occur, and it, it, it reveals that the field is evolving, and as reviewers, uh, we need to stay abreast as much as we can of what the latest thinking is, so that we can do a good job being gatekeepers for the field. I, I hope so. I, I know that originally
1: uh, Ralph and I had this romantic notion that every reviewer for every journal would have a copy of this just sitting on their uh, on their desk, dog-eared, worn, you know, post its, pages bent over, and and all of that. And that's uh, you know may, maybe a little uh, overly romantic and and maybe a little self serving, but. But on the other hand, we just wanted to help bring some, you know, some standards to this particular task. And you know, we joke about reviewer too, but but we 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 get so many bad gatekeepers out there. And uh and and I don't I don't even mean that to be critical of of editors and journals per se. It's just very hard to find people who are knowledgeable about the things, uh, the methodological things that are contained in the substantive uh, works that they're asked to review. And and they're not always candid about it, right? You can, and, and if you're an author who knows more than the reviewer, it's a very, very difficult position to be in um, when, you know, this doesn't sound very kind, but when the village idiot is the gatekeeper, how do you handle that uh, as the, and I mean that in the most loving of ways, of course. Everyone loves the
0: village idiot. Yes, <laughs> who doesn't love a good village idiot? But You're absolutely right, though. I mean, there are times, uh, there have been plenty of times where a reviewer has said about one of my manuscripts that I did something incorrectly, and indeed I did. But there have been occasionally times where I, I felt pretty strongly that what we did was the right way to go, and the reviewer disagreed. And it is this interesting dance where you have to phrase your feedback to the reviewers as, I understand what you're saying, but here's why I think we might need to do it the way I said we did it. And you kind of try to say that in a polite and respectful way. But part of you is also thinking like, gosh, I really wish they read that chapter in the reviewer's guide because they would see that I did it correctly. Um, and this is something that now can be cited. Exactly. That's all you should need
1: to do. That's all you should need to do is just cite the, cite the reviewer's guide and, and they should, they should
0: cow to your, to your brilliance, I think. Yeah. I, I, I've offered to ship a copy to a few reviewers, <laughs> but they haven't taken me up on it yet. Uh, but I mean, I, I do think so. This is called the Reviewer's Guide to Quantitative Methods. But I, as you point out in the preface, um, it's also equally useful to people who are conducting and disseminating research. I mean, I know that when I write up a manuscript, um, I will go to the chapter and look at the list of things that are there as things I need to include in my manuscript so that I'm doing a good job of addressing all the points that you list in that word that I can't pronounce Desiderata. Did I get it right? No. Um, No, but keep trying. No, that's a good start, Jeff. Yeah. Well, I I I need a list of uh, those just to pronounce that word. Uh, But it it, the the guide is a really useful tool for people who are also writing manuscripts, um, so that they can check and they're addressing the points they need to address.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm very glad that you find it that way. In fact, you know, when Ralph and I were doing the first edition, we sort of went round and round on the title itself, and it you know we had originally and Ralph might have been the one who thought about this first i don't the, the the origins of this are muddled um but but we had some concerns that if we labeled it researchers guide then it would sort of blend in with lots of handbooks and we we absolutely didn't want the word handbook in the title and and even saying researchers guide we thought maybe lumped it in a little bit more than that and and we really wanted to frame it as something that's useful when you have to critically evaluate stuff. And, and you know, every time when I read the title Reviewer's Guide, in, in my head I hear reviewers and researchers guide to the, you know, slightly different voice, but it's there. Um, and we, ta- we even played around with changing the title for the second edition. Um, one graphic even had a little editor's carrot inserting... You know, and and researchers uh, in there, but but in the end, we kept the title the same. But but I'm I'm so glad that as a researcher, you find it useful. And in fact, in the end, it might be researchers who wind up um, using it a lot more. Uh, I have been in this uh, this wonderful position of having Skype meetings with with people or video conferences with people, uh, and. I see the book on their shelf behind them. And, uh, and I don't think it's staged, you know, that's not, in fact, I, <laughs> I know in one case, it wasn't staged, because I had a meeting with this person, uh, I think, uh, I think the person was in New Zealand. And I just happened to notice it on the shelf behind. Uh, and and I, I didn't say anything about it. Um, but on the next meeting, a uh, person goes, Yo, the review is God guy, you know, and so somehow the connection had been made between the last mm-hmm. meeting and this meeting and it's, it's nice. And so, you know, my response is, is this, why is it on your shelf? Why isn't it on your desk? Come on, come on, get it over there on your
0: desk. Should be right next to, right next to the APA manual and uh, whatever book of uh, higher authority they happen to ascribe to. That's right. Uh, so something else that I really appreciated about the guide was that you included not only chapters on statistical analysis techniques, but also measurement and research design. Because I I worry that as researchers and reviewers, sometimes we don't pay sufficient attention to all three of those things and how they interact with one another. And so I I was really pleased to see that you addressed all those those three different topics, um, giving people an opportunity to think about them in a more integrated way. You
1: know, one thing that I will say about that is that the line between research methods and statistics and and measurement that, that, that line is really blurring as we move to you know maybe a more model-based way of thinking about the way we approach things um, we know that There are certain types of research designs we couldn't even think about before because we didn't have the methodological machinery to be able to tackle the kinds of data that would be yielded there and the the measurement error that's inherent in some sort of settings we couldn't tackle because there wasn't sufficient sophistication uh, in the measurement world or even ability to integrate what's going on in the measurement world with the things that we do that are statistical and design-oriented. So... We, we did want to start bringing those things in because I think the divisions among measurement statistics and research methods are is increasingly artificial. Um, it's still hard, though, to, you know, to, research design means so many things to so many people. Uh, cluster analysis means a few things to some people. Uh, but if I just say research design to, to any random person in the building I'm in right now, they might describe it differently it might mean very different things for their for their field so you know as i look ahead to third edition and so forth maybe unpacking that a bit more will be useful you know i maybe maybe there should be a chapter specifically on regression discontinuity designs or you know things that are increasingly aligned with the quasi experimental uh, framework so, so I, I'm glad that you appreciated that here.
0: And I see that also as an area for growth as this uh, evolves. Yeah, I, I sometimes think that uh, causal inference could be a chapter. Causal inference could be a whole book. And you could start with causal inference and then build to design measurement and analysis from there. Um, but again, being better reviewers and better gatekeepers of what gets published and reified in the field requires understanding all of those things. And it's nice to have folks like your chapter author, authors who are out there keeping us up to date of those things so that we can can focus on the work. So a little bird told me that there are a few fun anecdotes about the chapters in the guide. Anything you'd want to share? Oh,
1: well, um, I did mention the one already about the <laughs> the person with the book on the shelf. Uh, um Another one I might mention, which was just kind of cute, um, you, you know, when you when you write things uh, in academia, you often have little sense of who sees them. Now that that's less true in with the you know the social media and how we we promote ourselves through ResearchGate and Twitter and all of that kind of stuff. But you don't always know who's reading what, right? You you work on something for a year or two, you put it out there, and you're already three projects past it. Um, so you, you, it's hard to know that people who's in touch with what you're doing. And I was on the, this was the year, year before last, uh, I was in a college town out on the West coast and I was having lunch in a, some sort of taco bar. Uh, and I'm standing in line to place my order. It's, uh, sort of Chipotle style, not wasn't Chipotle, but Chipotle style. And someone comes up to me in line and says, excuse me, when is the second edition of the reviewer's guide going to come out? (laughs) And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) More sour cream. Wait, what? (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) it it was just so surreal that someone would be, you know, aware of it and that in a taco bar out there on the West coast, Um, that's not, and so at conferences, you know, I've had more and more people come up and ask about it. And um, it's a, it's a really cool thing. We, We hope that it's making positive impact on how people on how people do things. And, you know, as you as you know, the books that we do are really not about the royalties. You don't you know, anybody who thinks they're going to make money off of writing a book, um, if you out there in podcast land think that that's the way to go um re- rethink it. Uh books are generally not the way to uh <laughs> to, to make your living. So, you know, we we really do hope that this serves a, a larger purpose um because lord knows we're not making uh we're not making money off it. Uh but but we've gotten so much really nice feedback from I mean everybody from new students all the way up to editors of journals. Um and we have had some editors say that they recommend it for their um for their editorial board members and I've had uh, I've had faculty at different universities say, "Oh, we we assign it. We 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 have our students purchase it early on in their program, and they carry it. They sort of have it with them throughout the program. And you know, that was just a very touching thing that people have have found it sufficiently useful to want to integrate it into into the actual training that their students are receiving. That was very nice.
0: It, it sounds very nice, and uh, I, I have often ex- had my work discussed in in taco bars." <laughs> um, so it doesn't, doesn't surprise Wait, what me. kind of, what kind of bar? I didn't hear that. Yeah. Well, also you can oh. ask what kind of work, cause it might not be okay. my scholarly work that gets discussed in taco bars. You're but, a legend. <laughs> um, <laughs> in, among the salsas. Yes. Uh-huh. So, uh, maybe we should talk just a, a little bit more broadly about a few things. I'm curious as to what you think are, um, some of the exciting new directions in quantitative methods. Wow. Um, Exciting new directions. Well, I alluded
1: to some of them, and that is the the increased integration among research methods and measurement and uh, and statistics. Uh, that that to me is is very exciting. the 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 decreasing compartmentalization of this stuff, and we're seeing that made possible by um, by people learning more about what's going on w- across the fence with their neighbors. And uh, so I, I think that the research, you know, I, well, let me just say, I would like to say that the research ten years from now will be much, much more integrated. Uh, that from the very beginning of the study, you know, let's just think about it in terms of a, uh, a, a quasi-experimental design. That people are thinking about every aspect, um, the quality of measurement, the statistical methods, the modeling, etc. So, so I see more and more integration across those. I also think that a, a Bayesian presence will just continue to increase, and I and I welcome it. And with it will come new assumptions and arguments and uh, and concerns. But it will also allow us to be, I think, more flexible analysts. And that's that's really a goal of mine. Certainly for the students that I have the the opportunity to work with. And an analogy that I use sometimes, and I think you might have even heard me use this before too, is that. You know, my kids. I have I have three kids, and and they've all gone through Lego phases, right? And the Lego phases usually start off with them getting these little kits with very prescribed instructions and and you know some small number of pieces, twenty Legos, and then you work up to the you know eventually you're working up to the Millennium Falcon one that will take you a couple weeks to put together. Uh, but you know, st- the statistical methods are becoming increasingly complex. In, in a way, like the, the Lego kits do. But, but at the end of the day, I don't just want people who can do really complex Lego kits. I want people who are, are the engineers of what they need. And I certainly try to emphasize that in the training in the program that we have here at the University of Maryland. But I also hope that re- applied researchers are becoming more and more that way. Rather, you know, when people sometimes, you know, if I ask them, what are you working on? And if I ask an applied researcher, what are you doing? What are you working on? They might say something like a logistic regression, you know, and and that's not really what I want to hear. And maybe they're saying that because they know that I have uh, methodological interests. but But oftentimes people think in terms of the compartment that's defined by the particular method that they're using. And I would much, much rather have people talk in terms of the questions and the link to the models that they're going to assemble for themselves. Um, So I hope, I can't say that I think it's moving this direction entirely yet, but I'm really trying to uh, do my part to nudge it in that direction that we we construct the models that we need from the start. We say things like, we will have measurement problems. We will have some, we expect nonlinear relations. We expect some interactions among these variables. We um, have a hierarchical data structure. What are we going to do? And the answer isn't to reach on the shelf and grab this or that or that. The answer ultimately should be to build what we need and to become the engineers of the methods in ways that they are tailored spot on to to our research questions. And, you know, as you know, you read a lot of these articles and there is this beautifully grand introduction and with the expectation that the Uh, that the conclusions that are reached will be equally grand in terms of constructs and relations and moderation or whatever you want to have. But there's this analysis section in the middle that doesn't always continue that thread. You know, it it sort of says, and we did a a T test and a simple regression. And you're like, there's nothing wrong with those, but how did those address your questions and, and how do those align with what your original plans are? So my, so my hope analytically is that we're really moving toward a, um, a build what you need kind of model. And we will need software to, to help us with that because we really can't expect all applied researchers to be ground up coders. So we need them um, to help us to put together the, the things that we want to do. That's really where I hope things are moving. And that might require different estimation strategies in the background, like Bayesian, for example. Uh, but I hope that there's better consonance among the design, the analysis, the measurement, and the exact models that we're using to address our research questions.
0: Well, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I know that uh, the worst meals I've ever cooked are the ones where I bought some fancy new thing at the store and brought it home in the kitchen and said, I got this new tool. What do we have in the closet? Let me cook with it. And it, it never turns out well. Um, you gotta <laughs> have to start with your questions and the phenomena of interest um, and let me just say for the record, for whoever is listening, that I, for one, welcome our new Bayesian overlords um, <laughs> and, and will submit to their wishes and, and prior beliefs as they see fit. They're not going to help you with your George Foreman grill, though. I'm sorry. S- sadly, no one can, um, <laughs> as my as my family can attest. What do you think are some current challenges uh, to people who are doing quantitative research? What are the things that seem to be um, Prominent in the field that we haven't quite figured out yet. Well,
1: there there are uh, there are methodological challenges, but I don't really think. I mean, th- there will always be methodological challenges, um, and and ways that our our different subdisciplines and discipline as a whole will be evolving. I think I think one of the challenges that we have right now is in how is in how people access the methodological developments. On the one hand, with with more open source options, and you know, I'm sort of thinking of R primarily you think, wow, it's just, you know, it's bringing everything people need on a fairly uh, continuously updated basis and all. And the answer is yes. However, you know, thing one is that that's very much a caveat emptor world. You know, you people throw something out there and and is it okay? Is it not okay? I don't know. Do you know, does it change the next time around? So So there's a lot of buyer beware there. But then also, does this mean then that every applied researcher also has to be very facile with, with a coding environment? And, or are we just creating a different type of technological rift? You know, those who, those who have, and those who don't have. Uh, And, you know, I, as, as a methodologist, I love people coding stuff and, and getting intimate with their models and their data. And I think that's absolutely great. On the other hand, I cannot reasonably expect people to do that, right? A person who, um, who is a very good cook, like yourself, Jeff, um, doesn't have to know how to build an oven, doesn't know how to, you know, how to have to build all this other stuff. And and so, so I would like to see this wonderful uh, open source sort of Mad Max Wild West that's going on right now. I would like to see that become more and more accessible to the people who who need to take advantage of these evolving methods. And and I'm not sure how that's going to happen yet, um, but I hope that's what happens. Mm-hmm.
0: It is a challenge. There is so much flexibility and so many options available today than there were before. But there, as you said, it is kind of buyer beware. And uh, I almost wish there was an app store for our packages where people could leave ratings and kind of stars. And you could say, well, that's an interesting package, but it only has three reviews. and an average of two and a half stars. Maybe I won't try that one right now. What are you working on right now in your research? That's exciting to you. Ah,
1: uh, wow. So, well, not the reviewer's guide. Um, I, <laughs> there's a certain amount of, there's a certain amount of recovery that takes place after that.
0: You think about it all the time. <laughs> I, I, I question your lack of excitement.
1: Right. Um, so, you know, my, my work is methodological. Uh, which means that, you know, I like getting under the hood, taking stuff apart, building new things. And that, that is my content area and the content area. I mean, the, uh, so the methodological areas that I work on include sort of broadly speaking issues in structural equation modeling and, and latent growth modeling. We're doing a lot of very just so cool um, nonlinear growth model things um, here. Uh, what we call time to criterion growth models, where you look at individual differences and how long it takes people to reach some sort of, um, whether it's academic or other threshold, um, and looking at subclasses of individuals who, um, you know, some who grow faster, who reach threshold or criterion faster, some would do it slower. So we're looking at a lot of variations on growth models that are tailored toward very specific research purposes and needs, uh, and that draw f- from, the broader nonlinear family of growth models, and that's that's incredibly exciting. I'm also just uh just so geeked about some of the planned missing data stuff that I'm doing uh, with one of my students right now and uh for those people listening who don't know what that is, uh, usually we think of missing data as being the bane of our existence, but uh you can actually plan studies where you decide you're not going to gather all information from all people. And there can be benefits of that for, well, to, for minimizing respondent burden, but certainly minimizing cost because data cost money uh, and time. Um, but there are ways to optimize designs so that you maintain power for testing the hypotheses that you want while not gathering data from all people. And there are a number of offshoot projects that we have within the domain of planned missing data that I think is, I mean, Honestly, I think it's very timely as budgets, you know, grant budgets get tighter and tighter. You have to find ways to make the most with what you have, Uh, and I think this is an area that um, that's very, very promising. So we're doing some cool stuff uh, here at Maryland in that area, and I can't wait for it. Can't wait for it to come out.
0: So it it sounds like a uh, statistician salutation. May all your missing data be planned. (laughs) It's cross-stitched on a pillow,
1: actually, here in my office. I don't know if you can see right. it from there.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, our podcast listeners are missing out. Oh, sadly. okay. Well, imagine, just imagine. Well, Greg, thank you so much for speaking to me today about the Reviewer's Guide to Quantitative Methods in the Social Sciences, which is edited by you, Laurel Stapleton, and Ralph Mueller. It's published by Rutledge. It's available on their website, all the usual venues, but I encourage folks to take it out. And again, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to us.
1: It was my pleasure. and. Uh, and just a final note that we're because it's always evolving, uh, if people have feedback about it, things that they might like to see in the future, um, we always welcome that kind of input as we as we consider the future of this particular project so thank you all thank you very much